to another episode of the Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host. I'm Kara Corinne Safeli. I'm a health coach and a food and body image coach who's in the process of retiring. I've been talking about that over the last month or so on the podcast. I am shifting careers. I am pivoting after seven years of helping people heal their relationships with food and their bodies. And to celebrate the past seven years and to kind of bookend this chapter of my life and kind of tie it all neatly in a little bow, I decided to publish one last book on the topic. So I started my coaching career by publishing a book called Body Wisdom and I am closing out my career as a coach by releasing a book called One Day at a Time daily reflections for overcoming food and body image struggles. It's designed to have you read one page a day and my hope is that whatever page you choose to read because you don't have to read it in order is exactly what you needed to hear that day. It's a culmination of writing that I've done over the last seven years. It has poems and personal stories and pieces of like content and passages that are designed to help you have a shift in perspective and mindset. And mindset and perspective is also something that I talk about extensively on today's episode with Alana from Freedom with Food and Fitness. We talk about how thoughts or excuse me, rather thinking and acting are two really different things and how food is only as powerful as the story in your head that you tell yourself about it and you have the power to change the story, to change your thoughts. We also talk about mindset and thoughts around fitness and how to develop a really balanced, positive, nourishing, fun relationship with movement We also talk about intuitive eating with health considerations and how Alana approaches that in her own life. And we cover very similar topics inside the book one day at a time. So not only are you going to get into some of that goodness today in the episode, but I really encourage you to go check out my new book. I'm so proud of it. I love it so much. And I hope you guys really love it too. It's been really cool to see you post on social media Uh, Seeing the book in your hands is still so surreal to me. And then one quick thing before we get into the episode, you still have this week and next week to enroll in my two courses, Food Body Soul The Academy and Embodied Rebel Masterclass. Food Body Soul The Academy is an uh, all-inclusive, designed to be done over four months, self-paced program for you to heal your relationship with food, your body, and yourself. It's amazing. You can check out the link in the show notes. You can read all about it on the landing page. And then Embodied Rebel Masterclass is the information and the transformation and the application around body image that you didn't know you need, but you knew something was missing. Chances are Embodied Rebel Masterclass is the missing link to you making peace with your body and no longer hating it so much and feeling like you just have to change it or you just have to love it, et cetera, et cetera. It's absolutely powerful and incredible. So this week and next week are the last opportunities for you to enroll uh, in those two programs before they are gone forever. So July 5th is your last opportunity. And without further ado, let's get into the episode with Alana. Hello, Alana. Welcome to the pod. How are you? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm chatting with you, I guess, like almost two weeks in a row, right? We talked a couple of weeks ago for your pod. Now we're meeting again. Very fun. I, I I can't wait for your episode to come out because I've been listening. I listened to your podcast for maybe about eight months, I would say, before we actually hopped on. And I hear your name all the time, Kara, Kara, Kara. And then like when it came time to like say your name, I like froze and like a second guess myself. I was like, shit, which one is it? <laughs> I was like, I'm doing the thing that people do to me. It's it's Alana. It's not Elena, but so I got it. It's Kara. Yeah. We're yeah. we're good now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's all good. I mean, either either or. Like, it depends on your accent too. Like, 
when I lived in Australia and I would introduce myself as Kara, they would be like, oh, Kara, because of their accent. So it's just like, like I got used to being called it so much so that when I came back from Australia, I was like, I'm Kara because I got so used to it over the year. And like my friends were like, your name is fucking Kara. (laughs) Origin story of the name. (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. You know, now I go back now I've been gone long enough that I'm back to saying Kara, but like, I really did like say Kara for a while. Um, whatever, but like, you know, that's that's a great story. I love that. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, let's get into it. Um, I love to start every conversations with my guests learning about the formative years, the early context for your life, just like what your upbringing was like, what your experiences were, because they are so, they, they form who we become. They play this massive role in our motivations and our beliefs. And so what is that early context of your life that I would need to know and understand so that I could really understand who you are sitting in front of me today? I think that it's a story that doesn't fit the typical, I would say, story of someone who suffered from an eating disorder or disordered eating. There's no big T trauma. There was no abuse. There was no, not even little T trauma of, you know, mom bringing me to Weight Watchers since I was nine. There was really none of that. There was not a whole lot of diet talk. But what I think did create the monster that I ended up having to battle in my 20s was perfection and this reliance on external validation. When I was a kid, I was in a straight size body. I was what I guess most would call conventionally cute. It was a cute little girl, right? And I would get praised for that and that's fine. And I got good grades and I excelled in that. So I got praised for that. And then, you know, every, you know, kids have extracurricular activities. I was good in those. So I was just, I was blessed and privileged to, ha- you know, have the opportunities I had and also the skill and, the look of what we consider to be conventionally acceptable. Um, And all of that converged into a whole lot of validation, external validation, validation, gold stars, awards, accolades. And I was an only child as well, so I got a lot of attention. That all sounds wonderful. That sounds like the perfect childhood. And when I look at my childhood, I say it it was wonderful, but there is a shadow side to getting all of that validation is that I never learned how to cultivate that validation for myself. I didn't know how to handle failure. I didn't know how to deal with it when I wasn't the best. And I mean, the best we're talking, I was, it was a small suburb in New York. Like how many kids, you know, really like, oh, you're the best of 30 kids. Great job, girl. But, you know, I didn't learn those very important values and coping mechanisms. So when I got to grad school, so when I developed my eating disorder, I was, you know, relatively speaking older, you know, a lot of people have developed eating disorders in their, in their teens and preteen age. So I was 22 and I was ready to graduate. I didn't have a job lined up yet. I had no idea if I was going to get a job for September as a teacher. I had no idea where the job was going to be, if I was going to have to move away from family and friends and what was going to happen with my boyfriend. And, and also this ranking system was going away. When you're in school, it's your A, B, C, D, F. And that's that's how you know your place, right? All of a sudden, I didn't have that. I didn't know where my validation was going to come from. And all of the very subtle messaging I got as a kid about dieting, which I did get because my mom was in diet culture as well as her mother, came back to me and I said, well, okay. And again, a lot of this was very subconscious, but it was like, okay, You don't know how to rank yourself. You don't know if you're going to be best at anything anymore. So why don't you just try to be the best in terms of your body? And to me, best meant thinnest. So my singular goal became be as thin as you possibly can. And then everybody will praise you and think that you're the best at that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like you just traded a different yardstick to measure your worth against that was, was continuing to be something external. Exactly. And my life was very, I lived a life of privilege and I'm not, you know, it is what it is. I can't, I can't apologize for it, but I can recognize it. And it was also a control thing. It was, I don't know where my life's going for the first time in my life. I'm scared as hell. I need to grab a hold of something to take control of and preoccupy and feel like I have autonomy somewhere. I'm going to take it here with my body, with my weight, with my food. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so common. But like you had said, it's a subconscious thing. Like, 
I think that if you're listening to this podcast, to some degree, you've created a level of consciousness and awareness around your struggles, like for those listening. But when we're just getting involved in it, it's unlikely that we're like, you know what? My life feels out of control right now. And I am no longer having these, you know, I'm no longer going to be in school. So there's no longer this ranking system. And so, you know what I'm going to do so that I can find validation and I can find a sense of autonomy is I'm just going to like freak out over food and my weight. Like it's not, that's not the thought process. No, it's not. It's not like this is, this is after like years of <laughs> processing and therapy and, and, you know, becoming a coach. I was like, oh, this is where it came from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So do you recall what it, what was the thought process back then? Like, do you have enough of a memory of like what it was actually, what was actually going through your mind at the time? You know, I, I didn't know anything about like weight set point or anything like that. And I just, I felt like, I felt like if I didn't have a hold on my weight, and it started to creep up that it would become like a snowball or like in Indiana Jones, the big ball that kind of like goes to wipe out Harrison Ford. Like I felt like it was going to become this thing that I couldn't control and I was going to gain weight, gain weight, gain weight and never be able to stop, which we know is not, that doesn't happen. And it was just, again, I, I wanted validation. So I was afraid that if people saw that I gained any weight or I wasn't as fit as I used to be, they're going to be like, Ooh, she let herself go. Or Ooh, she's not, you know, the health, the, the healthy fit person we thought she was and what happened to her. And I got a lot of praise for it. So it's to not have that praise or to, to, to not keep it up right. felt very unsafe. Okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So it was more just like, I need to keep this up so that I'm not shamed or judged or criticized. And so that I can continue to be seen as like the good, healthy, valuable person that I've been told I am because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I think we've talked about this before, the good girl complex. Tell you me to, more. You have to, you have to, we're also not all of us, but a lot of us who identify as women, we're socialized to believe we have to be the good girl. We have to follow the rules. We have to do the right thing. We have to be pretty. We have to be quiet. We have to this, that, and the other thing. And we fall into that. And I fell into it. And it's like, well, a good girl would manage her weight. And that's right. what I did. And then, you know, that's the narrative I heard. So and I always, I was a people pleaser too. That was my way of people pleasing. Like I'm going to make other people feel comfortable with who I am by fitting into this box. And I believe in this box because I've been socialized to believe in that box. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So I think that I want to go a little bit deeper into what you had said about like not knowing about weight set point theory or understanding that like the body tries really hard to keep us within a certain weight range because our body is regulating the amount of oxygen that's in our blood, the amount of, you know, like our body's regulating all kinds of things, the alkalinity of our blood, like all these different things. And it also regulates our weight and we're not taught that. So you had this belief that if I don't control it, I'm just going to gain and gain and gain and gain. So one, where do you think that thought came from that if you don't control it, it'll gain and gain and gain. And then can you go further into weight set point theory and just kind of like explain how that works for anybody listening who's like not aware of what we're talking about. Sure. So weight set point theory is basically, I mean, I, I've heard different numbers, but like the five to 10 pound range where your body runs most optimally. And there are theories out there that weight set point can change depending on certain, you know, behaviors and things with your metabolism and all this stuff. But basically it's the idea that your body wants to stay within a certain range um, so that it can run most optimally. And I think the thing that people forget is your body's sole mission is to keep you alive because if you are not alive, neither is your body. So this whole idea of you're going to go crazy on food and, you know, keep gaining weight and gaining weight till you pop doesn't make any sense because your body doesn't want to be unhealthy. It doesn't want to eat Twinkies all day. It wants other things. It needs other things and it's going to seek out those other things. So when I was struggling, I got down to a certain number and no matter how hard I tried, I could not get below that number. No matter what I did, no matter how shitty I felt, no matter how little I ate, whatever. It was because my body was fighting me tooth and nail. And if I ate, you know, a little bit over the already little amount that I would allow myself, my weight would shoot right up 
because your body's like, you're not supposed to be here. Get up, get up, get up. And that's why I teach intuitive eating. And I can't answer when somebody asks me, well, am I going to gain or lose weight? I don't know. It, it depends on your current relationship with food. You might lose weight because your body's at a, you know, your weight, you're not at your weight set range because you're binging or you're doing whatever, or you might be below your weight set range and you need to gain some of that weight back in order to stop struggling. And you'll know when you're not struggling anymore and you'll know you're at your weight set range when you're, when, when, when your weight stabilizes, when you're not up and down and yo-yoing and, um, and, and, and it's effortless. Right. That's the other thing. You're not forcing it. Yeah. So it's like, just like your body will fight against getting below the set point weight range, your body will also kick in certain mechanisms to try to keep you below a certain range as well. So I think it's important to kind of highlight that, that like it wants to keep you within the window. It doesn't want you to go below or above that range. And so just like you have that security of like, you're not going to gain weight forever and ever and ever. Now, obviously, if you if we get into disordered behaviors, then like, yes, your weight's going to be impacted and you're going to gain weight. But just like if you engage in disordered behaviors that are highly restrictive with overexercising, can you lose weight below your range? Yes. So like it, but it requires disordered behaviors, you know, like it requires you to engage in things that are really unhealthy and things that are really extreme for you to get outside of that range. So can you? Yes, but you have control of it in the margins. It does require extreme behaviors to get above or below. And so there's hopefully some like reassurance of like, you don't have to try that hard to control your weight. Like your body's got it. Like it knows how to do it. It regulates a million different mechanisms every single day. And you can just relax. Like your, your body will figure it out and you don't have to try hard. And that's how, you know, you're within your set point weight range is you don't have to try hard to maintain that weight. It's just where your body wants to be. And it's often the weight you return to between diets as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a funny thing before my eating disorder, I was one weight. And then during it, I was another weight. And then when I became an intuitive eater again, I went back to the same weight that I was. So it was just, it was fascinating to watch that. But what is your, what is your take on, you know, weight set points moving? And do you find that to be a concern of a lot of people? Yeah, good question. Um, A little bit. I think it's a valid fear, you know, of people. What I've learned has primarily come from Dr. Sandra Amet and her book, Why Diets Make Us Fat. She was the person who introduced me to weight set point theory. And, you know, she says that it can be influenced by pregnancy. It can be influenced by hormonal shifts like menopause for women and that your weight set point theory can go up if you stay at a higher weight for a long enough time. But there's debate around what a long enough time is. So your body could adjust and think that like, okay, this new higher weight is the set point. But what she does say is that like, it hasn't been observed to go down, that we haven't observed set point weights to go down, which also explains the phenomenon that we see that, that, um, when you diet, you end up heavier in the long run, not lighter because your set point weight overcorrects your body overcorrects. Um, but yeah, I think client, I feel like client we're, they're all concerned, you know, like as a, as a collective, like we're all concerned about our set point weight being too high about it going up and also being unhappy that it's higher than where we want to be. Like, I think that's a really big component for a lot of people as well. It's just like my set point weight is higher than where I want it to be. It might be not within the healthy weight range on the BMI, which we all know. Which we know. (laughs) pile of bullshit. Yeah. It's just a pile of bullshit. Yeah. Let's get a little deeper into your struggle. So like, what did it look like for you? What was your, you said eating disorder, were you ever clinically diagnosed? And what was it like? Were you a restrictor? Were you a dieter? Were you a binger? Were you all of the above? Were you obsessing over calories? Just paint a picture for us. And then we'll get into like what your recovery process looked like. I was a lot of things. I, uh, I would weigh myself every single morning and I would do crazy things. I would, this hair, I always have a hair tie on, like just in case of emergency, long haired girls, you know, um, I would have, if I weighed myself with the hair tie on and forgot, I would, I would take it off and weigh myself again as wow. if this 
Yeah. I would force myself to have a bowel movement. You know, I wouldn't take even a sip of water before I got on the scale. The scale was everything. And if it was, if it was lower one day, I was so happy all day. And if it was higher, I had so much anxiety around how was I going to eat differently today so that the scale could go down tomorrow. Uh, so, so addicted to the scale, I did my fitness pal for a hot minute. I counted calories since I was 14. I, um, I tried macros for a hot minute because that felt like, oh, well, like all foods fit in the macros, but like, you know, no one talks about the, the hot mess you feel like when it's like, you don't know what to eat for the last thing of the day to balance everything out perfectly. It's like so bullshit. Anyway, <laughs> macro counting. Um, I was never formally diagnosed to answer your question with any of this stuff. Um, I, I had binge eating disorder for sure. I would restrict heavily Monday through Friday. And then on the weekends was like my cheat time and I would binge and I would feel so out of control and such shame. And then on Sunday nights, like, oh, starting Monday, I'm going to be good again, quote unquote. Right. So binge eating disorder, I had body dysmorphia. I had a lot of insecurity around my stomach. I always wanted those washboard abs that are just not in my genetics. So sorry, girl, you know, uh, and then I had orthorexia, which isn't, I don't think clinically diagnosable yet. I don't think it's in the DSM five yet, but um, hopefully soon. And that's an obsession with clean eating. So I was, it was like, had the foods I was allowed to eat because they were safe and they were clean and they were healthy and everything else gave me anxiety unless I was, you know, in a binge episode and then, you know, everything was fine. <laughs> everything was out the window. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And you know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how long, so it started when you were 22, how long did it last before you were like, where you had your moment of like, well, did you, yeah. How long did it last? And then when did you start to realize like something has to shift? I can't keep doing this anymore. Yeah, it was, maybe it was 21, 21, 22, my late twenties, about, about six or seven years. I would say I just, one of the defining moments for me, which was so interesting was I was following this blog. It was like this lifestyle, health and fitness blogger. And she was so pretty and she had a nice body, right? The conventionally nice body, I should say. Mm -hmm. She had a, a, a handsome husband, cute kids, made all these beautiful meals, had all these exercises. You know, her life seemed perfect. And then she had a blog post where she talked about how she was diagnosed with hypothalamic amenorrhea. Oh, which for anybody period, right? Loss of period, and she was told she needed to gain. I forget how much. Doesn't really matter. But she. Oh, I'm sorry. She hadn't had kids yet. They were trying to conceive and she was diagnosed with HA and she was really upset about it. And I, I thought to myself, like, it was like this moment where I was like, oh my God, I could actually not be able to have a family down the line when I'm ready for a family if I keep screwing my body up this way. And look at this person who I thought had this perfect life, but really, she, I mean, she must have been massively restrictive or restricting or over-exercising or something was wrong. Yeah. So this perfect girl I thought was so perfect wasn't so perfect. Okay. So was that kind of like a light bulb moment for you? That was. Okay. That was a light bulb moment. And then, you know, recovery takes so many phases. Um, that was a defining moment for me. I found uh, a, I don't want to say the name, one of those companies that has on-demand streaming exercise workouts and container meal plans. We'll call them that. Okay. Um, whatever, right? Like delivery meals and workouts. Yes. Okay. Um, and I was on the container, the portion control container program for a while. And that was like, an, honestly, that was, it was very diety, obviously, but it was an intermediary step in my recovery because mm -hmm. at least I wasn't just trying to eat the least number of calories possible until I passed out. Right. Now, at least I was eating something that was a little closer to adequate, but I was still trying to heavily control what I was doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, honestly, and I regret this very much. I didn't seek a dietitian or a therapist or anything like that for my recovery. I just leaned very heavy into podcasts like yours and a bunch of others. Um, Jesse Jean has a great podcast. How to Love Your Body is a great podcast. Fuck It Diet podcast. Mm -hmm. Those were my saving grace. I read the intuitive eating book and I just dove into this world and heard stories of people that were dealing with what I was dealing with. And I didn't feel so alone anymore. And I was like, oh my God, this, this is an actual thing. A, I'm not alone. And B, there's another way to live. Right. There's another way to live where I'm not killing myself here. So it was, it was so eye-opening and it took, because I didn't seek, you know, expert support. It took a long time. Yeah. It took 
Yeah, that's okay. You know, like I think there's, there's been, um, so many people over the years who have said very similar things of like your podcast helped me heal. And I think that that's great that like, there's free resources out there that can support people and getting through their process. And when I look back, I did personal development programs, but I didn't work with like a specialist. Right. And when I look back at like what helped me in my process, a lot of it was like free documentaries about stuff, you know, um, does that mean there's not a place for help? Of course not. Right. Like you help people. I help people. Um, and there are there people that need help and want help and who have tried to do it the way that you did it and couldn't and haven't, they feel stuck or they haven't figured it out yet. And they know they need that extra level of support. Like they, for whatever reason, they can't do it on their own. Yeah. Those people exist, but I'm curious of like, what has you, do you feel bad about not getting help? Because it just, you feel like it took longer than it would have taken otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. And I say that a lot is I don't regret my eating disorder. I'm a very big believer in things happening for you and not to you. And I could choose, and we'll get into this, I'm sure in a little bit, because I definitely want to talk about it, but everything we think is a choice. I could choose to sit here and say, boo-hoo, poor me. I had an eating disorder. I basically wasted my 20s, which was supposed to be the fun time of my life. Um, and now I have a kid and I can never have fun again. <laughs> and go down that road, right. right? Or I can say, okay, like that happened to you, but look at everything that came out of that that was amazing. You, you showed yourself that you could do this really hard thing and you can get yourself out of it. And now you, you're, you're, you're healthy. You feel a lot more confident. You've built a business that helps other women. So you're paying it forward. You're not going to screw up your kid in this way. Like I have a son, so it's a little bit different, but is it really that different? You know what I mean? So like I have the tools to help him. And I think, you know, I, cause I, I did a lot of professional development too. I've built up my, my mindset and my thought process so much. And I've learned how to manage my emotions so well. And I wouldn't have felt pushed to learn any of that stuff. Right. Unless I had gone through what I went through. Right. Right. Totally. I relate to all of that as well, you know, and then like what you're saying. And I don't know why this popped in my head. It's like, I'm with you. Like I probably wouldn't have sought out all the personal development work if I wasn't so fucked up. <laughs> I, my perspective on who I was in my early twenties and teens. Um, but it's just, this is just a side tangent, but like, it's so funny because there's so many people who are so fucked up, but who like, just don't seek help at all or like do any type of introspection. And this is just like a rant, but it's just so interesting that some people are like, I want to get better. Life can be better. It doesn't have to be this hard. And then there are other people who are like, I'm just going to pretend it's not hard and like suffer in silence about it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Or I'm just like, almost like they want to suffer. Like, it's like, I'm suffering, but I'm also not going to do anything. I'm just going to make excuses. And like, I don't know if you know anything about Myers-Briggs. I mean, a little, but not, I'm not like, uh, I'm not super well-versed. I've taken a Myers-Briggs test, but that's okay. the extent. I love it. Okay. I'm, I'm an INTJ, which basically is like every single villain in every single Disney movie ever. Like I can have, like, I can be super warm, but I can also have this cold this to me where I'm just like, just go get fucking help. Like, what are you doing? Stop it. <laughs> like, yeah. stop the of yourself and do it. You know, I get like the pull, pull yourself up from your bootstraps and deal with your shit kind of mentality. And, you know, it, that's hard for a lot of people. But I think that's, I think that type of mentality is what got me out of my, my issue. And same thing with you. You, you just, you were like, all right, I'm fucked up in this way. I'm going to do the work. And, and you came out the other side and so did I. So I think we're, we're good examples. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, like hearing how, you, what you were just saying, it makes me kind of think of like tough love. Like it's possible that like, it's coming from a, a, a mean place, but the vibe that I got from you around this personality trait is more of like a tough love of like, I love you and I'm not going to let you be the victim or let you get away with your own bullshit you know, yeah. like, I'm going to be real with you. I often think of like, um, did you ever watch Grey's Anatomy? A couple of seasons. A couple yeah, of seasons. Okay. Do you remember Miranda Bailey? They called her the Nazi. She was like the main resident of the interns. No, tell me more though. Okay. Well, she, I always think of her, I think of her as an archetype and she is like, like direct. She doesn't mince her words. She is sometimes a hard ass, 
but underneath it, it is nothing but like warm, gooey love. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's exactly what it is. And like, actually Harry Potter. Yes. Fan. I've, I've, I've seen like six movies, not the last one. Okay. Snape who was like supposed to be, I hope I'm not, I mean, it's been out long enough. I'm not spoiling. Snape was this character throughout a lot of the series that we think is this bad guy. And I'm, I'm, as we're watching the movies, I was watching with my husband. I was looking at him. I was like, he's INTJ. He's not a bad guy though. He looks like he's a bad guy, but he's not. And he ended up not being. And he was like someone who just felt very strongly and ended up being like almost like a hero type of character. But it's just, yeah, I, I feel so deeply and I want people to succeed so much. And I just, I've worked very hard to be where I am today and I want to see other people do the same and I want to give them the tools. Like I'm a very supportive, like everyone says I have like the mom vibes now that I'm a mom. So like, I want, I want to help people so much, but I want them to help themselves too. Right. Yeah. 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 Totally. Yeah. Totally get it. Okay. So are there any, so you talked about podcasts and personal development work your aha moment was with this blogger girl, her coming out about her truth. Um, clearly she was under eating and over-exercising. If she had HA, that is like a very common, well-known symptom of like eating disorder, anorexic behaviors for anyone listening. Um, any other big things that helped you in your recovery process? Like any other things worth mentioning that could also maybe help anybody listening? I'm a huge fan of cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. Um, and not even in the traditional sense. I just like, I learned it through, again, podcasts. The whole idea that your thoughts create your emotions and drive your outcomes blew my fucking mind, which was just like, it was one of those things that you you hear and you're like, that should be so obvious to me, but my mind is blown out. <laughs> right. So I use that a lot with my clients because I really think, you know, we were talking about weight set point and when you mentioned that your weight set point can actually change with pregnancy, I feel that. And I didn't know that because I've actually gained more weight since my pregnancy. And I think my weight set point must have changed a little because mm-hmm. I'm stable, but you know, it's, I, I think it's higher than it was. Mm-hmm. And it's not even about the weight though. Like, that's the thing. It's like, what are you making your weight mean about you? If your weight set point is higher than somebody else who's five, four, what are you making that mean about your self-worth? What are you making that mean about yourself and how other people perceive you? So there's a lot of very unhelpful thoughts that people have around weight and body that create these emotions that drive them to do things like diet or binge or do really unhelpful things. So we need to kind of reverse engineer that. Um, and that's what I started to do. It's like, how do I, what outcome do I want for my life? Cool. Now, what emotions do I have to feel to drive me to do those things? Cool. What thoughts do I need to have about myself to create those emotions and create those outcomes? So that's what I do with my clients. It's all, I feel like it's a lot about the mindset, even more than the behaviors in some ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm right there with you, like talking about meaning making. I didn't learn it through CBT. I learned it in a personal development course, but I'm assuming they must've learned it from CBT. Who knows? But the meaning making thing of making our emotions mean certain things, making our certain body parts mean certain things. So like, you know, I want to get into it deeper, but, um, and hear more of your perspective around it for me, like I made my cellulite mean so many horrible, awful things about me. Like I made it mean that I was gross and disgusting and unlovable and worthless. And I was never going to be like well-liked or popular. Like that's what I made my cellulite mean. Now I'm like, I don't make my cellulite mean anything. And so that's the freedom. And so that's kind of what we're speaking to here for people like listening. It's like my cellulite didn't have to go away for me to stop making my cellulite mean those things. I have to stop making my cellulite mean those things. And that was the shift. Yeah, absolutely. And one practice that I'd like to have my clients do, and because it helped me, like I, 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 any, any strategy I give them, it's something that I did for myself as well is when you're looking at them in the mirror at yourself and you're looking at a body part, you don't like, think about all the things that your body, that body part does for you, or think about all the other things that you are aside from your body. Like I'll look in the mirror and I'll be like, you wrote a book, you birthed the baby, 
you have a full time, you're a working mom, like you did all these cool things. Like, like this body has gone to Italy and France and Hawaii and done all these beautiful things. And again, my stomach was always my trouble ish, you know, area. So when I got pregnant, I did have this very real worry that that was going to crop up again. Mm. Um, but now ironically, it is one of my favorite parts because it was so resilient and it was my, it was, it was Archer's first home. You know what I mean? And I, I see it so much differently now. So the perception has really changed and does it look exactly the way I would ideally want it to No, but you know what, again, like it did some real cool shit. Right. And you know, everybody wants to talk about body love, body love, body love. And like, that's fine. But I think we need to remember what love means. It's not that you are 100% always okay and in love with whatever the thing or the person is it's 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 like a marriage sometimes sometimes you want to kill them sometimes you're not too happy with them but you love them anyway so even if it doesn't look the way I want it to look I love my body anyway and sometimes I do like the way it looks you know what I'm saying it's it's day to day it's different but it's like it's like the thoughts are clouds that just kind of pass through they just kind of come and go yeah like you don't have to believe everything you think Yes. It's it's not all facts. That's another thing. Challenge your thinking. If you're having a thought about your body, be like, is that really true? Right. Like for, 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 for you, was it factually true? It could be held up in a court of law that if you have cellulite, no one will ever love you. It's like, well, no, 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 no. Yeah. Love it. I feel like this is so important. And it's funny that you were talking about um, like when someone taught you about CBT and that you, your thoughts, influence emotions and feelings, which influence actions. I remember the first time I learned it. And I remember I was interviewing somebody who went through my food, body, soul program on the podcast, a previous client and now friend. And I remember her, I think it was on the podcast. Maybe it was in DMS. I'm not sure. Um, when she had said that blew my mind the first time I heard it of like, I am not my thoughts and I don't have to believe everything that I think. And the thoughts that I do believe are going to influence my feelings and my actions. And it's just so interesting because like, like you were saying that should have been like a, like, well, duh, obvious, but it isn't obvious to us. Like it's not obvious. And so I get how much of a like thing that is the first time you hear it, you know? So maybe somebody is listening and it's the first time they're hearing it too. And that's just really cool. You know, I, you know, I learned it from the life coach school podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She's, and she was like, she's like, you know, she's kind of in that diet world. So like, I wouldn't really recommend maybe, or just be right. careful of your selection of episodes, but yeah, yeah it completely, completely blew my mind. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the other thing that blew my mind is the idea of the eating disorder voice and like whose voice is speaking mm. when you say these things to yourself, like, is it really you talking? Like I hear my mom a lot. <laughs> Interesting. My mom it's not me <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's probably not your mom talking it's probably some diet magazine yeah or like you know my grandmother whoever or you, right but they all got it from somewhere you know what I mean like I think that it's really unlikely that our thoughts around food and body like are ever actually originating from us no but like from no. some level of diet culture even with our mom and with our grandmothers like they learned it from somewhere too right you know right. Um, but yeah, space for that too. I think we have to, we have to have compassion for that. I don't blame my mom for anything. Like, God damn you. You told me how to count calories. How dare you? It's like, no, she learned it from some, she's trying to keep me safe right. in a world that values thinness. You know, she wants me to find love and she believes because of our society that that's the only way, you know what I'm saying? So I don't, I don't blame her at all. Um, that I, I just want to make sure that that's like, very no, it clear. didn't come across that way. No, yeah. I'm just like reading it. Yeah. But I think, I think that's also helpful for other people to understand is, you know, whatever, you know, if you're, if your mom brought you to Weight Watchers when you were nine, she wasn't trying to harm you or, you know, create a, a, an environment where you don't feel safe in your body. She was, she was trying, it was trying to help in the only way that she knew how, typically. I, you know, I, I think creating boundaries with parents and maybe even having these conversations can be helpful. Totally. I mean, I think we can, 
empathize with like our parents doing the best they can, but that doesn't mean the same thing as like denying the impact if it really did cause us harm. And I think acknowledging impact and blame are two very different and distinct things. And so like what I'm hearing from you is like, you're acknowledging the impact of your mom teaching you to count calories, but you're not blaming her for causing your eating disorder. Cause you can understand that like her intentions were, I'm trying to keep her safe. I'm trying to do what society says you have to do to be like a respected, successful woman in the world, whatever, whatever, you know? Um, but I think the, the struggle comes when parents won't acknowledge that they caused harm and they get really defensive and that I experienced that. And you know what? She, she's, you know, she, she's set in her ways now. Like she's just, it's going to be, and you know what? We just, we, I put up boundaries with diet talk. She knows what I do, mm-hmm. you know, my business and she could deny it all she wants. It's it's my truth. So I get to hold it and she, she could be wrong about it. And I think that's, that's another really great takeaway that I got from a podcast once is like, people are allowed to be wrong about you. Like if you gain weight and someone's like, Ooh, she let herself go or Ooh, she went, they're allowed to be wrong. It's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, I like that. They're allowed to be wrong and they don't know they're wrong, but they're still allowed to be wrong, you know? Really fine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So two things I really want to dive into with you based on your expertise. I want to talk about fitness and I want to talk about intuitive eating with like actual health considerations. So let's dive into fitness first we can maybe start with like what your definition of a healthy relationship with movement and fitness is. And then maybe we'll paint some specific scenarios and we'll hear your advice on that. So what does a healthy relationship with movement look like? I'd say a healthy relationship with movement looks like finding something or a couple of things that you truly enjoy doing that involve moving your body and are things that you can realistically do in a sustainable and consistent way. And I know the typical recommendation is like 75 to 150 minutes per week. So I would say, because that is the recommendation, you can try to get somewhere in that, that is fine. But I also would say if you're someone who doesn't exercise at all, you can start off much smaller than that and build, but you want it to be, I think, I think the two biggest components are it, it has to be activities you enjoy and it has to be something that you can do consistently, but also realistically. Like it's not, it's not realistic for most of us. I mean, speaking as a a working mom to, to work out in the gym for two hours, like that's just never going to happen right now. And that's fine. And quite frankly, it's probably never going to happen ever, even when he's older, because I don't want that to be my life, but you know, 30 minutes a day for me is what I get. And that's what I do. And it's fine. And whether it's gardening or walking or running or CrossFit or whatever it is, just keep, just keep doing it. And if you love it, you'll continue to do it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Love that. So takeaways are something you enjoy and something that is sustainable and realistic. And then also maybe I'd throw in flexible. I was just, yeah, I was just about to say like, listen, there are days where you're going to get 10 minutes in five minutes in or no minutes in or no minutes in. And that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. It's when we look at things like nutrition and fitness, we have to look at the bigger picture, right? It's not one day, one week. It's, it's, it's this average and this, this combination of everything that you're doing. And, And also I think it's valuable to say at this point that nutrition and fitness aren't the other parts of health. There are so many other parts, but We'll focus on the fitness right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, totally. I mean, there's lots and lots of contributing factors to overall health. Um, but since your business name is Freedom with Food and Fitness, we'll talk about those. Okay, so what would you say to somebody who had so much pressure put on them to work out all the time from their parents, from their doctors, and then they became an adult and they put that continue to put that pressure on themselves to exercise, to lose weight, exercise, to lose weight. It was always about that. Did you exercise today? Are you exercising enough? Is it hard enough? Are you being consistent enough? Just like really militant, really rooted in rigid diet culture. And then this person finds intuitive eating, they find anti-diet and they haven't worked out in a while. Maybe, maybe nothing past like the occasional walk for like a year plus. 
because they're really giving themselves that spaciousness to heal, to really shift their relationship with food, their body around weight. And they're at this place where they intellectually know that for their value of health, they need to start moving again because there are very legitimate benefits to movement and our bodies need to move and they're designed to move. But they're really, this this avatar, this hypothetical person, although it's not that hypothetical, is struggling to feel motivated to exercise again because it's not about weight loss. They're like, well, if I if I already know weight set point theory, so the likelihood of me becoming thin, I already I know the science of that, right? And I know that every time I try to exercise for weight loss, it you know, it lands me in this really unhealthful place. But like I'm struggling to feel, I'm feeling like what's the point? The health benefits are not motivating enough for me. What would you say to somebody in that situation who's like, I know I need to do this, just like I know I need to sleep and drink water. Like, fuck, I don't want to, but I want to want to. Right. Right. I, I, you know, I think there are a couple of different factors. Number one, start small, like just commit to five minutes a day and see how you feel after and, and then add 10 minutes. And I think goal setting and reaching small goals can make somebody feel more confident in their abilities to create a healthful, sustainable habit. So start small is number one. Number two, read James Clear's Atomic Habits because he talks about habit stacking. And if you're somebody who's not very motivated or has trouble creating habits, he talks about habit stacking where you take a habit that you've already established, like brushing your teeth, and you add one on top of it. So like when you go to the bathroom to brush your teeth at night, put your workout clothes on, you know, the the sink counter. You know what I mean? So that when you go back in there in the morning to brush your teeth, they're visible right there. And it's like, you almost don't have an excuse. Um, And the third, and I would say most powerful strategy is, and I do this for a lot of different reasons with my clients, but thinking about your future self and journaling your future self. It's like right now when we're in our thirties, forties, you know, however old you are, it doesn't seem like there's much of a benefit to working out other than weight loss you're like but like I'm fine I'm healthy I'm young whatever but like think about yourself in your 60s 70s 80s do you want to be this like frail person who has no balance which is something exercise gives you falls and breaks a hip because you have no muscle to protect your boat you know what I'm saying it's like stability endurance, flexibility, mobility, all of those things are so important later in life. So do you want to be one of those people who is older and kind of just wasting away until they die? Or are you somebody who's still traveling and playing with grandkids? And like, who do you want to be down the line? And if, if, if that's not you know, good enough for you in the short term, you know, it gives you endorphins, it gives you an energy boost, it helps you sleep better. So, you know, even if you want to Google, you know, non-diet benefits to exercise, I'm sure you can find a huge list. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amazing, amazing offerings there. Starting small, totally like start small, love the idea of habit stacking. It's like, if you want to listen to a podcast, can you go on a walk while you listen to the podcast or, you know, while you're brushing your teeth, maybe you do knee lifts. I don't fucking know, you know, (laughs) anything, maybe you walk in place while you're brushing your teeth, if putting on the workout clothes, right? So habit stacking, great tip. And then thinking about the end of your life, your future self. Uh, absolutely love that. And then the one thing I want to add, which you spoke to earlier, uh, was about your Myers-Briggs personality type, where you kind of have a little bit of this stuff like tough love energy. And, um, I read a quote and it's, and I can't remember, I can't remember who said it, but it was like change happens or like the greatest transformations in life happen when someone gets tired of their own shit, something like that. And so it's like, you know, at some point I feel like there's such a balance. There's a time in recovery when the thing to do is to honor your feelings. And it's like, I really don't want to work out because for so long I made myself work out when I didn't want to. And right now the healing thing to do is to honor the fact that I don't want to work out and to not beat myself up for it. There is a time and a place for that in recovery. And then there becomes a time and a place in recovery when the most loving thing to do is to do the thing, no matter how you feel. 
So it's like, okay, I know I don't really want to work out because it's not motivated by weight loss, but I know that the loving thing to do is to push myself here. Right. And get in some movement. Go ahead. Do, do I want to get up at fucking 4am every day during the week so that I could work out and do my morning routine? Like I love, I love my mushroom coffee. I love going on the PEMS mat with the fucking red light therapy and doing my journaling and getting some quiet time for me. Do I like waking up before I am for that? No, but do I really like my routine and the benefits I get from them? Yes. And to, to speak to what, what the other thing that you said is one of the most profound things that I said to myself that got me moving more toward recovery was, do I want to be this way for the rest of my life? Right. Cause I finally realized if to maintain whatever results I have right now, um, physique I have right now, I'm going to have to do this bullshit for the rest of my life. And it's already torturing me. Like, do I want to be 60 worrying about this bullshit still? No, like, this is not what I want my life to be about. So I, I just had to say recovery is scary. Like recovery is so scary. Like the eating disorder sucks and it destroys you, but the fear of recovery almost feels worse because mm-hmm. it's the unknown, at least like the ED is the devil that you know. Right. But I said, I said what is the alternative here? Like, I, I cannot do this for the rest of my life. I don't even care what, what, what happens in terms of my weight anymore. Like, I just need to get out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I have, like, I felt very similar to you. I almost feel as though, like, you're, you're speaking for me with how you're talking. Like, you sound exactly like me. Um, to me at least, um, I feel as though I'm listening to myself speak. So we have a lot of similarities there. So I'm curious if you have a perspective though, on people who are like, yeah, no, I, I, I could live like this. I could, I've, cause I've heard that from people who have eating disorders. They're like, I'm, I'm, I'm in a state of pseudo recovery and I'm okay with it. I know that I still have some disordered behaviors and I still have um, an unhealthy relationship with movement or food or my body, but like, I'm still living my life. Like, I'm are still- you though? Are you like, that's, and I, I have, I, I created a, a worksheet for one client in particular, and then I just kept it because it, it was good, right? It's effective, but it's basically like, it has all these different boxes and it's like how, like all the different facets of your life where eating disorders and disordered eating can, can move. It's not just food in your body. Right. Like I remember, and I'm sure, I'm sure you could speak to this too. Like my social life took a hit. Um, intimacy was very difficult. You know, I had brain fog, so I couldn't do well in school. And then the flip side of the worksheet is like, what do you want in all those parts of your life? Like, what do you want your ideal life to look at? And sometimes when they see what their life is like versus what they want, they realize how big that gap is. And then they realize, oh, maybe, maybe I can't do this for the rest of my life. Maybe I'm not okay with the box that I've put myself in mm-hmm. because I see now after that, I see all the things that I want and I can't have if I stay here. Right. So you see the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a really great tip for anybody listening of like, maybe even doing that exercise for themselves yeah. of just like actually taking inventory of these different categories of in different areas of your life and looking at what's actually really real and current in terms of the quality and what do you actually really want in that area and how much is your eating disorder creating that gap between where you are and where you actually want to be that's going to require a lot of honesty as well you got to be honest with yourself you know yeah. and yeah. it's not pretty and another great question is okay you're not you're, you're cool with where you are and your your disordered habits would you be okay if you have kids would you be okay with your your son or daughter exhibiting those behaviors would you want that life for them and if the answer is no then why do you, why are you okay settling for it with yourself yeah powerful super powerful yeah yeah um love that you brought up thinking about the end of your life I feel like that's one of the greatest life hacks mm-hmm. in the world is just thinking about the end of your life and that I feel like is so clarifying for how to deal with shit in the moment, you know? Yeah. I, I have an exercise called tombstone thinking. Um, <laughs> it's actually, it's so morbid. You know, I don't find it to be morbid. I know some people might get like weird about talking about death, but I think it's so life affirming. Right. It's, I, I tell them like, what do you want people to say at your funeral about you? Do you really want the, the, the talk to be, well, she had great legs. She like, was fucking oh, hot. She's fucking hot. Like, 
120 pounds mm -mm, like that please if that's what they talk about at the end of my life I did something wrong like if I did not contribute anything else other than a weight like um not that I weigh that much I actually don't know what I weigh because I don't have a scale but anyway um, (laughs) uh and then so so what do you want people to talk about at your funeral um when you're on your deathbed how do you want to think about your life because you're going to be reflecting yeah and are are you going to say you know god I really wish I would have just enjoyed the pasta when I was in Italy or, you know, would have gone to the beach with my, my family instead of being worried about how I was going to look in a suit. Like, what do you want to be proud of? And and what are you going to regret if you keep on this trajectory? Right. And what do you want written on your tombstone? What do you want the epitaph to be? She was a dime piece. She was a smoke show. She boiled chicken like a motherfucker. Yeah. So this is not what you want for your life. No, and it's really it's not. So it's so powerful to think about what, what do you really want from your life? And then what do you want to think about it at the end? Yeah. I, I love that you brought that up because, um, yeah, I feel like I, I've, I've talked about that on Instagram and I like did a post around the book, the top five regrets of the dying. Um, cause I read that book like late last year. So yeah, I love that. Like, I love that we're having this conversation and I hope that people listening, are as inspired around this thought exercise as clearly you and I are, um, because it's so powerful and so clarifying and, you know, you're going to look back and just be like, fuck, I wish I went to the beach with my kids as opposed to saying I stayed home because of my shame, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Or, Go ahead. or even, even, or I regret now that I'm seeing my children act the way I did. And I gave that to them. Right. That was that was one of my driving factors. I don't I didn't want to pass on it to whatever child I had. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally, totally, totally. Um, okay, I want to touch on intuitive eating and health considerations. So on your Instagram, you've been open and outspoken about having genetically high cholesterol, which means you do have to be conscientious um of what you eat. That's very valid, right? Like no one in the intuitive eating space or the anti-diet space is denying the impacts that like certain foods can have on your blood sugar, for example, your cholesterol, for example, right? Um, But a lot of people make the assumption of like, well, intuitive eating is not for me if I have diabetes or I have prediabetes or I have high blood pressure or I have high cholesterol. So what's your perspective? What is it like for you? What advice do you have for people who have legitimate health concerns, but like want to be free from dieting, want to be free from a restrictive mindset, want to be an intuitive eater? Anybody can be an intuitive eater. And I mean, anybody, but everybody has to do it within the confines of their own individual biology and, 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 and diagnoses. So yeah, I have genetic high cholesterol. I make, I make no bones about that. That is just, it's, it's on both sides of my family and now I have it. And that's, I think one is again, health is it's a very well-rounded thing with a lot of different components. So I make sure that that means movement, consistent movement for me is very important. Managing my stress level so that my blood pressure doesn't go up is really important for me because usually, you know, high cholesterol and blood pressure, when you have that combination, that's when you can run into some issues. So I have to manage my stress. Um, I have to uh, not smoke, which luckily I never smoked. So those are other considerations that I have um, so that my my high cholesterol doesn't become too much of a problem down the line. But in terms of just the cholesterol, I was told to um, by my doctor to uh, try to cut out animal based fats. That was the uh, that was the recommendation. So I said, okay, let me give this a try. And I cut out a few things and it dropped 50 points in like two months. So there was, there's a method to the madness, but, but then again, do you, do you want to go down the rabbit hole of orthorexia and being so scared of animal based fats that you never eat cheese again? That is also not me. So I, I have to, and everybody who wants to be an intuitive eater with health considerations has to find a balance between what, what could you get rid of that you wouldn't really miss? So for example, like, like mayo, I could take it or leave it. I don't even really eat a lot of things that would require mayo. So like, that wasn't really something that bothered me, but I will die. If anyone tells me I have to get rid of Pecorino Romano grated cheese that is in my life forever. I'm Italian. So (laughs) I grew up on that. Yeah. Yeah. So like, 
I'm never getting rid of that. And, you know, if I'm going out to eat and I see that burrata's on the menu, oh, it's on. I'm having it and it's fine. One day is not going to not going to harm your health. So I can have those things. I I avoid what I can if I don't feel restricted by it. And I think that's the key. If you feel very restricted by it, it's probably something you need to dig into a little bit more or allow. And again, so many other factors to your health. It's it's not going to be the thing to to kill you. <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then the big takeaways would be: What is it that you know you can not have, and it's not that big of a deal? And then what are those things that are really important to you, and how can you incorporate them in your life in a way that works for your health, but then also doesn't feel overly restrictive? Sorry, cat butt in your face. <laughs> I love it. My cat does that too. Yeah. 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 Okay. So any other like tips or my, any mindsets that you feel like are really helpful for people in this position? Just keeping in mind that there are so many factors to your health. I think just keeping a very wide lens. And I just did, I just did a masterclass on this, like how to pursue health without dieting. And there are so many um, different things that you can do. Uh, You know, I like to say, you know, what can you add into your life? Journaling, meditation, um, taking walks, hanging out with friends. Like there's so dozens and dozens of different things that don't require nutrition as well. So just like, so don't beat yourself up if you really like a food and you're being told that, you know, it's going to hurt you. And unless you're like celiac, like then just please don't eat gluten. you know, right. but just kind of keep in mind one meal, one week, one day, one type of food isn't going to, isn't going to harm your health. It's just keep an overall broad perspective. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I love also the perspective of kind of like harm reduction. That's something that I've read about too, is like, okay, if you have sensitive blood sugar and you want to have a pastry, what can you pair it with to reduce the impact it'll have on your blood sugar? So can you add in some protein and fats? And so in your situation, uh, you know, knowing that animal fats are the thing that you have to be mindful of. Maybe it's, I don't know what the thing would be to add in. I'm assuming like leafy greens or some extra yeah. movement you said, right? So it's like, yeah. what add in to reduce the potentially negative impacts that this could have? Lots of, lots of, you know, monounsaturated oils. So uh, nuts and seeds and olive oil and avocado oil and, uh, you know, plant-based proteins. Uh, I take an omega-3. So there's like a lot of things I'm trying to do. So yeah, that you're adding in. Yeah. Yeah. To still give you that freedom and totally like health is, there's so much more to health than what we eat and what we, how much we move. And I, I, you heard, you said that in your Ted talk that like, you know, 80% of weight is genetics and 20% of it is lifestyle, but only, but what you eat and how much you move is only two of all of the factors that go into your lifestyle. And there's so many more. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this has been a lot of fun. We're about getting out on our time. So I'd love to know anything else you want to add that just feels like I want to make sure I get this said. And then where can everybody find you? How can they work with you? All the things. Okay. So, well, first, um, when this drops, this episode drops, uh, the presale for my book will be, uh, well underway. So it's my debut book. It's my first book. So I'm so excited. It's called freedom with food and fitness. How intuitive eating is the key to your happiest, healthiest self. And it's, it's different compared to other intuitive eating books out there because the book is broken up into two different parts. Half of it's about food, half of it's about fitness. And I haven't seen another book out there that focuses so much on joyful movement. And I think we always talk about health and health and fitness together. I don't think joyful movements getting enough airtime and how to actually do that. And the other great thing I like about the book is I, I wanted to create a book that wasn't just philosophy. Like the intuitive eating book is amazing. It's it's something that everybody should read if they're looking to become an intuitive eater. But I wanted to create a book that had very realistic, tactical, actionable strategies that people could implement that day to get them one notch closer to becoming an intuitive eater and approaching, you know, nutrition and fitness in a way that is not diet centered. Uh, So that's, that will be released on November 7th. So I'm very excited. Cool, cool, cool. 
And uh, if anybody wants to find me, I'm mostly on Instagram at Freedom with Food and Fitness. Uh, my website's freedomwithfoodandfitness.com. Uh, there you can find a free resources tab. I have masterclasses and worksheets and, and a bunch of different goodies. And then if you want to work with me, you can also go to my website or you can just go to freedomwithfoodandfitness.com slash discover. We can hop on a free call. We can talk about uh, my program, Defy the Diet, which is a 10-week group coaching program with private uh, coaching options as well. So if you're looking to uh, get into a space with uh, supportive women and pursue health without obsession. Let's go. <laughs> Hell yeah. Way to go on the book. I love it. Are you going to self-publish? <laughs> What's the plan? Is it like an Amazon? It's traditional. Thing? I traditional got it. Publishing. Oh man, that was Fuck hard. Yeah. yeah, that was really hard. You know what it was? My editor, it, it spoke to her personally. Oh, nice. And that's how, because trying to get a book traditionally published in the health and wellness space, you have to be like a celebrity right? or have a million followers on Instagram. So I was like, cool, see you in 30 years when I have that amount of followers. So, you know, it spoke to her and I got really lucky in that way. She told me she cried through the whole book and I was like, wow. okay, good. All right. It hit with someone. Good. That's amazing. Congratulations. That's hard. It is hard to do that. Good for you. Yeah. I'm you very so excited much. for you. It's a huge accomplishment you know, to, to write a book and be a working mom, like clearly you have a good work ethic. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. If I have nothing else. <laughs> I have that. Yeah. Um, so you guys all know where to find Al Alana, not Elena. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, freedom on Instagram. It's been so fun to chat. Um, I'm really excited for this to come out and thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast. Please feel free to DM me on Instagram or send me an email. If you like this episode, if you have any questions about either of my two courses or any of my three books, feel free to reach out. And thank you guys so much for being here. And I hope you have a beautiful day. We'll see you next week.